This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing live on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. But we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. Coming up, have you noticed Boris Johnson's a bit different? Less prone to picking a fight. Uh, Slightly less prone to over-optimism, perhaps. There's definitely a change going on in number 10. We examine Johnson 2.0, how to reboot a PM. Uh, We speak to uh, Steve Swinsford, the new political editor of The Times, plus the Tory MP Charles Walker and uh, Baroness Jenkin on uh, why she wants to see more women uh, getting uh, high-profile roles in this rebooted government. Uh, That's coming up later in the episode, but first we always kick off with our columnist panel. And it's a Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Now, before we get stuck into the news, we're talking about political memorabilia. And uh, my hunch was that Danny would have more than David. But my inbox has been filled this morning by, with both of you uh, showing off what you've got. So, Danny, why don't you start with what, what's your best, worst or weirdest well, bit I, of political memorabilia? I've got a lot. <laughs> and I've got a very large collection of prime ministerial letters. So the one that I sent you was a letter appointing someone to the Privy Council where Neville Chamberlain has asked the King for his permission to appoint somebody and it's signed by the King uh, and Neville Chamberlain. That's probably my best bit, but I've got quite a few others. Lots of American political buttons, for example. Including one from uh, Joe Biden's run for president in 1988, which is, you know... Yes, yeah, Ross Perot, Stevenson, Nixon, you know, loads, hundreds... What about you, uh, David? Could you top any of Danny's? No, um, uh, he's a collector and I'm not a collector, but I'm an accumulator, um, which I think is a slightly kind of different thing. So my first reaction uh, when tasked with this was to think, oh, God, I haven't really got anything. And then I started looking around and thought, this is nonsense. You've got loads of stuff hanging around. Here. It's just <laughs> that you haven't kind of organised in in the kind of vaguely anal way that Danny has. Um, uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> do you don't think that vaguely excuses that insult, do you? Oh, you think it's worse than it vaguely? Well, it may, yeah, okay, fundamentally maybe. But um, uh, uh, for, for example, I've just bought a mug 
uh, with the term hardline centrist on it um, because Guido Forksight started accusing people of being hardline centrist, which is a kind of unusual accusation. It goes next to a mug called Control Immig- has Control Immigration on it, which, who gave me that, Danny? Do you remember? Oh, I did. You did. <laughs> you knew I, I, I hated... I completely did, yes. You knew I had hated Ed Miliband's kind of attempt to show that he was actually worried about immigration during the 2015 election, so they produced this mug called Control Immigration. But the best thing I've got is actually a series of cartoons, framed cartoons, by the, uh, by the cartoonist Vicky... Very, very famous cartoonist in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And this is at the Paris Conference of 1960. This one is framed, showing Khrushchev, Eisenhower, etc. It's a conference that was abandoned after the U-2, shooting down the U-2 spy plane over Russia. So it was kind of really kind of significant. And I think my dad probably won it at a Communist Party raffle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, capitalism... Catalyst is very bad unless you're fundraising, in which case it's totally fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, right, but let's, let's update things ever so slightly to today's uh, current political um, uh, scene. Um, we, we've talked quite a lot about Keir Starmer over the last few days and on the, uh, on the show yesterday with, on, the, on the focus group. The panellists on the focus group weren't uh, particularly um, uh, nice about uh, Keir Starmer. But is there this slight feeling that everyone's got a bit over the top? The commentary decided it's no good. Um, uh, David, you described this as Keir Starmer's Kenneth Williams moment. Let's take a listen why. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me! <laughs> That was the one. We can't miss an excuse to play a clip from uh, <laughs> Carry On Cleo. So why is Keir Starmer having a, Keir, uh, having a Kenneth Williams moment? I, 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 this is something I really wanted to hear Danny on, because not least because he worked for people like William Hague uh, uh, when things were really bad for the Conservative Party. Um, because it, I, there I was, kind of, I'm following mostly things like the pandemic and what's happening in America and so on, and with kind of half an eye on British politics. But as far as I could see, looking from the polls, etc., judging along, Labour was kind of motoring, kind of motoring along, not making any kind of great waves, but then we're three years out from a general election, so on. It's still kind of defining itself. And then all of a sudden, in the last week and a half or so, all these commentators appear to be saying he's having a really dreadful time. I look at the polls, they haven't changed. Uh, there's nothing out there. And then it's about Labour Party people might be saying he's having a dreadful time. And then there's the question of whether Andy Burnham will stand yet again in a Labour leadership <laughs> that, isn't, that isn't happening against Keir Starmer. And I thought... How does something like this become come to be? And I thought, I know who knows this. Danny knows this. Yeah, you're quite right, David. First of all, the situation for Keir Starmer is nothing like the situation it was with William Hague, where we were holed below the waterline almost from the beginning. Um, his position is substantially better than that. Uh, I, I, was, I made a comment when Chelsea won this week um, and everyone was delighted they'd gone back up to fifth place. And I said, isn't regression to the mean magnificent? Right? There's a statistical concept, which if you do, that, that, that things cluster, you do particularly well, then you do particularly badly. And in the end, it can, can kind of comes back to the average. Right? And that's exactly what's happening with Keir Starmer. There are periods where everyone thinks he's just about to become prime minister. Now we're going through, uh, you know, boringly, a dip in which everyone thinks exactly the opposite uh, but it's the average that really matters i think that he's got one big thing in favor in his favor um two big things actually which are that he is 
uh, thought by lots of people to be a potential prime minister and he's got time for a change on his side. Uh, but against it, I think he's making some strategic decisions that I don't think are the correct ones, um, which is that he's decided to go for the low-hanging fruit of the red wall seats rather than seek newer voters, which I think are more amenable to Labour. So there are strategic questions over Keir Starmer. Um, but really, it's really a mistake to follow these things up and down. We'll have forgotten all about them in in two or three years' time. Um, his position, his position, I would describe as solid, um, reasonably promising, but not brilliant. Um, and I think there are questions about his strategy, which I'm sure you know, David David shares. I do. Now, I, do. So, I, I feel like I should mount the opposite argument. As someone who wrote a column about him in the Times at the weekend saying he was a bit rubbish. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think basically what happened last week, where there were lots of little things, actual things that happened, which were an opportunity to hang on a sense that things weren't as spectacular as some people might have expected by now. So the weird sort of, uh, um, you know, ding dong he had with... Um, suffering the indignity of discovering that on this occasion Boris Johnson was telling the truth and he'd got it wrong it was not a good you know it was not a great moment uh the fact the polls seemed to be a bit wobbly and just I suppose it's one of the things where uh it's difficult sometimes it's difficult to put your finger on the fact that we're yeah. you know nine ten months into his leadership and people have just started to wonder this this question and I've said it before it, on the show um is he keeping his powder dry or has he got no powder because because people kept got ahead of themselves, right? We first of all they're underestimating the strength of Boris Johnson's position because lots of people think that um, that he is complete clown, totally useless, can't do anything, right? Um, they 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 can't then see how anybody else can look at him differently. Uh, and um, there, there are a lot of people who voted Conservative for the first time. It's a big investment. They're not going to abandon that investment easily. And your focus groups show that very clearly. So they. they underestimated Boris Johnson's strength of the strength of his position and they overestimated how much progress Keir Starmer was making just because of the sheer liftoff of not being Jeremy Corbyn but we we shouldn't make the opposite error and now think you know he's completely rubbish uh, he's you know completely failing the position is, is somewhere between those positions right he, he's he's not where William Hague was because uh, and actually I don't think he's where Ed Miliband was I think he's Ahead, certainly substantially ahead of Hague and a little bit ahead of Ed Miliband. But that, you know, Ed Miliband did actually end up losing. So there are questions. Do, what do you think, David? Should Do you get, because it, on the one hand, you know, do, what he says and does on a daily right. basis right now is not going to make a big difference to the general election in 2024. But do you get the sense of, some, this? is this someone who's got the courage, imagination, you know, political boldness, to, to, I mean, it's a, such a huge mountain that Labour have got to climb. And just sitting tight and hoping the Tories muck up probably isn't going to do it. Well, the, the, the thing that you right. seem to be seeking towards is whether or not he's Tony Blair. OK, uh, essentially, because the thing or, or, or maybe in a kind of different universe, Margaret well, Thatcher. I suppose, I suppose uh, it, it, if you look that, at the numbers, he's got to be, is not he? If you look at the numbers well, that he needs to make up to become prime minister with a majority, he's got to be a Tony Blair no, calibre, not William Hague. Um, for, it is true that Tony Blair is the only person who's managed it for Labour uh, and so on, although you could make an argument that had Gordon Brown actually gone very shortly after becoming Prime Minister, then in that case he would, uh, he would have had a very good chance of, uh, of, winning that, of winning that next election. So if what you're saying is you can only win an election as Labour with a truly exceptional leader, 
Uh, if that's your proposition, and if that was to be true, then it is possible that Keir Starmer may turn out not to be that person. Uh, but on the other hand, if you get to the end of a very long period of Tory, uh, of Tory government and people are tired of it, and he makes the right correct strategic uh, uh, decisions, and I think Danny's right about this, then I do think he has a pretty reasonable chance. But he will never be quite like Tony Blair was in 1994 to 1997. Because to do that, you do need a combination of circumstance, of personality, of insight, uh, and of strategic brilliance, which Blair had, which yeah. very, very few politicians possess. He also had this amazing, immense thing. Um, and by the way, obviously, I solved all of those problems in the moment when I wasn't on the air. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, he doesn't have this immense, uh, he doesn't have this immense uh, advantage of time for a change. That was, that was Tony Blair's big cop, as well as his own ability. And, and, and yeah. Starmer doesn't have quite a strong a sense that it's time for a change because Boris Johnson took over quite late and does appear to be some sort of change so it's dulled that that that's that weapon that tony blair had so it's not the same position but i do think it's overestimating it to sort of suddenly conclude he's not up to it and he won't make it actually you make a very good point there danny which i just want to kind of follow up on a bit, uh, which was going back to your strategic point about which voters to get um, the time for a change thing is going to make a strongest appeal to voters who are relatively new uh, and who feel that the old system has gone on for too long. In other words, you're quite right. They will not tend to be some of the people who moved over to the Conservatives over the course of the last 10 years. They're going to be a different uh, segment of voters. And to make the appeal time for a change, which is the strongest appeal that Starmer will have, uh, I think is you're absolutely right. You can't look backwards and say, let's go back to something that we had before. Exactly. Nothing else. I think that's an I suppose the risk is that the people who feel most strongly that it's time for change were probably the ones who voted for the <laughs> voted Labour last time, and it's a different sort of bunch you need to try and win over. Just um, quickly, because I was really interested in this as well. Uh, complete change of subject. This um, anti-vaxxers and what to, you know. There's obviously concern about people spreading disinformation ab about it. Uh, Priti Patel saying yesterday that she thought those spreading it were you know responsible for the loss of life. I think in the House of Commons, um, Twitter removing anti-vax. Uh, messages is this this is a, a sort of fundamental free speech issue is it david oh, this is so this is so difficult um, the, you remember the old um uh, definition which comes from i think it was uh, brand uh, brandas wasn't it or somebody uh, danny you'll remember who it was the the american chief justice who said that freedom of speech did not encompass the right to shout fire in a crowded cinema and the question oh, yeah, always comes at the level of definition at which a form of speech is either incitement to hatred in one circumstances or uh, you know direct hatred, like the radio station in Wanda that whipped up hatred against the Tutsis prior to the to the massacre, or which is in the effect of creating a situation which is actually injurious, significantly injurious for people. Um, there are real dangers with us, uh, but but how would you define then an anti-vaxxer? from, let's say, a locked, an anti-lockdown person who is also mounting an argument based significantly after a while on disinformation, but who may be an important contributor to a discussion about, that we talked about before, about what to do under circumstances of lockdown, etc. It is a very, very difficult one. And I tend to lean in the direction of freedom of expression. But I have to say, the pandemic really tests those limits. Yeah, yeah I... Um, I, I it, it, Yes, go on, sorry. 
No, no. I was going to say, uh, Danny. But what, what, what do you make of it? Well, I, I think that it's a very difficult. David's correct. It's a very difficult question, uh, and I also lean in the direction of freedom of speech. But it's not compulsory for Twitter to uh, to carry these people, right? That's a commercial organisation. Um, they've got freedom of, of expression as well, and part of their freedom of expression may be that they don't use their platform to. To, to spread this sort of disinformation. My, my view on Twitter to, is that a lot of the things that they've been responsible for spreading, like Holocaust denial or anti-vaccination uh, propaganda, they're not, they're not required to, uh, to, 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 to cover. Uh, they're not required to put it out, and they shouldn't. Um, so <clears throat> I think I would draw a line between what's legal, uh, and David even suggests, and I think you know, not unreasonably, that some of these, there's, there's some legal questions over these, some of these things. But with Twitter, I think it is simpler. I think that they have a corporate responsibility. They've got a lot of people on their platform uh, to make sure that things that appear on their platform are not things that spread uh, deliberate and extremely harmful misinformation. It, it is difficult because it means that they end up making judgments, and that's hard. But some of these judgments are easier than others, and anti-vax propaganda is not actually that difficult. Uh, the question is whether or not the government and government authorities should demand of bodies like Twitter that they do it and impose sanctions if they don't do it. And that's where you begin to get a problem because uh, I'll give you a very small example. And it may be that it's not that important, but I think it's indicative of a friend of mine who is very pro-vaccination, but who was making a joke about anti-vaxxers and who got thrown off Twitter because the algorithm obviously decided oh, that the way in which he constructed it was... and and. The thing is, if you create a, uh, an incentive for these companies to, sell, to do significant self-censorship, because people, billions of people are posting, they'll for formulate algorithms to do it, and all kinds of things will begin then to fall under, their, under, uh, under the terms of their algorithm. It's already happening, etc. And you've got to ask yourself what the impact of that will be. And I have to say, I mean, I'm sitting here now having this conversation. I don't think I'd be a useful advisor to government on this because I absolutely see both sides of this argument. That's incredibly yeah, I, I, even-handed I've, a measure to be. Go on, Danny, become, the last um, word from you, Danny. Yeah, I've, I've, I've become less tolerant of it, right? I think, that it, I think the spreading of that disinformation in the way that Twitter... Uh, enables is actually more dangerous uh, than taking a few of these judgments and maybe the algorithm making some mistakes. Uh, I think that um, I think that we, we need to have legal free speech, uh, but Twitter is not required to carry these uh, these messages and therefore uh, it shouldn't. That was Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there. Don't forget, you can uh, read them both in The Times every week. And me, in fact. Uh, you just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how to reboot a PM. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, have you noticed there is something different about Boris Johnson, about this number 10? about this government. After all that hoo-ha we had last year about the departure of Vote Leave duo Dominic Cummings, who was the Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, Lee Kane was the Director of Communications, and they left in a sort of blaze of glory at the back end of last year. So I thought it was worth examining now what, if anything, has changed. This is Johnson 2.0, how to reboot a PM. Obviously, it's harder to pinpoint the absence of something than the presence of it. But I think there are clear signs of a change in tone, of mood, of approach to governing and to managing Tory MPs. That isn't to say that the problems have gone away. There are still more than 100,000 dead from coronavirus. The economy is in crisis. And all the problems that existed before coronavirus are still there too. But behind the scenes, things have changed. The people I speak to in number 10 and elsewhere in government say it is slicker, more professional, more decisive, less antagonistic. After criticism that women were almost invisible in this government, female ministers have been out on the airways more, with talk of more to be promoted in a forthcoming reshuffle. So what is going on? Let's examine it with some of the people who have their finger on the pulse of the government machine. For instance, there's a new reluctance to escalate rows, most notably with the European Union. Here's an interesting exchange from Prime Minister's Questions a couple of weeks ago. Peter Bone, the Tory MP, goading the Prime Minister to boast how much better Britain was doing its vaccine programme than the rest of Europe. It is not just a great credit to your leadership and your government that we have delivered the vaccination so quickly, but also is it not one of the great advantages of having left the European Union. I do think that uh, we've been able to do things differently and, uh, and better, but uh, uh, in some ways, uh, in, in some ways, but uh, it is early days and it is very, very important to remember that this is an international venture, uh, these vaccines. Uh, we depend on our friends and partners and we will continue, Mr Speaker, to work with those friends and partners in the EU and beyond. A slightly different tone from the Prime Minister there. Boris Johnson's also long been criticised for his 
optimism bias. A former colleagues uh, back when he worked at the Telegraph, they recognised the trait. His columns and his news copy would often be late because he was always hoping that a better idea for a column or a better news story would come along. But that too seems to have changed. This was Boris Johnson, Mark 1, in March last year. I do think, looking at it all, that we can turn the tide within the next 12 weeks. Then again in June. Our vision for the country is to try to get back to normality for as many as possible, as fast as possible. And again in July. Allow a more significant return to normality from November at the earliest, possibly in time for Christmas. Now compare that with Boris Johnson, Mark II. This was him last week, refusing to put a timetable, any sort of timetable, on a return to normality, whether that's spring or summer or otherwise. I think it's too early to say when uh, we'll be able to lift some of the some of the restrictions. So what's really going on? There's clearly a new tone emanating from Downing Street, but are the wheels of government turning more quickly? Let's hear first from Stephen Swinford, the new political editor of The Times. Steve, is this a new Downing Street to deal with? It is different because Dominic Cummings was such a huge personality. He occupied a lot of the political space and we haven't had someone... On a, certainly on a kind of advisor, senior advisor level like that, I don't think since Alastair Campbell back in the day. So he was a very big figure. And there isn't another figure that has obviously replaced him doing that. Instead, the uh, chief of staff role has gone to Dan Rosenfield, um, who is basically there to kind of keep the PM in check and to make sure that he the day runs, that he gets up when he should be up and is at the meetings when he should be at the meetings. Uh, and stuff like that. So it's it's just different because you're lacking this hugely contentious figure at the heart of everything. And what that meant in practice was, whereas in the past, contentious decisions might have had to be run past the Prime Minister, they were also being run past Dominic Cummings. Uh, and that's, you know, in who was up and down and in favour and not had a big impact on the running of the government. And the tone of the government, what Dominic Cummings said and thought was absolutely massive. So when Dominic Cummings was in power, he would address the special advisers every Friday. Um, and there was always trying to, you, you, you do your ring round afterwards and try to get a readout on what he'd said. And what he, he said did matter. You know, he talked about the hard rain. He talked about getting rid of kind of very, some of the very senior mandarins that were around. And lo and behold, a lot of them did go. So what he said and what he did really mattered. And it almost mattered as much as, in, in terms of the broader context and what was going on in government as, as much as what the Prime Minister was doing because it set a very um, aggressive tone. I mean, it, there was no secret that a lot of Cabinet Ministers really didn't like him um, because they felt that he, he overstepped the mark and went too far and a lot of them were, were quite fearful of him, I think. Yeah, of course, it was, you mentioned the hard rain. That was Dominic Cummings saying a hard rain was going to come to Whitehall. It was going to be a big overhaul of the way that the civil service was run. And instead, what we've seen this, under this new you know, Boris Johnson 2.0 is his chief of staff now is Dan Rosenfeld, not a household name, but uh, a long-serving Treasury official who knows his way around government. The new National Security Advisor, not the outgoing Brexit negotiator David Frost, but instead the top official at the Ministry of Defence. And so normal, sir, you know, there were pros and cons to that, but it just feels slightly like normal service is being resumed a bit. It does, and I think it's different people for different times. So when Dominic Cummings came in, they'd just won a landslide election. They were looking to change things. They were looking to shake things up. They were looking to assert, Downing Street was looking to assert the Prime Minister's view and Dominic Cummings' view with that on the country to change it 
Whereas actually, as always in politics, events are everything. And in this case, the coronavirus pandemic asserted itself on this government in the most extraordinary way. And the government had to change the way it does business. And we are more big state than ever before. Things changed, but they changed partly because of the events, because coronavirus happened. So from the outside, we're getting this impression of the Prime Minister very much in the driving seat, a steady pair of hands on the wheel, less veering all over the place, you know, veering towards optimism or confrontation or aggression or whatever it might be. So a smoother ride, but some of the problems that existed before, there's still problems under the bonnet. The, the problems are, are endemic. They're very difficult. So one of the biggest challenges the government has is is that it the prime minister's optimism he always wants the best outcomes and he always wants you know he wants schools to be back he wants kids to be back at school and throughout this pandemic his desire to get the economy up and running and his ideas to get schools opening and things like that have come up against the coronavirus again and again and again and it's some really difficult situations such as schools reopening for a day earlier this year only to close again it's that classic accusation that he's you know, kind of over-promising and under-delivering, which I think is fair for a lot of what's what's happened. So what that's done from where I sit is the Prime Minister seems to have changed. So last week he met the executive of the 1922 committee, um, which is full of lockdown sceptics, some very senior Tory MPs like Graham Brady, Steve Baker and others were there, and they're the people that want to lift this lockdown as soon as possible. They were pushing him on his roadmap for easing the lockdown, and he just wasn't biting. He didn't go there. He was very, very cautious. And when I talk to people now, the biggest thing that he's worried about is the kind of black swan coronavirus variant, as it's called, the one that is truly resistant to the current generation of vaccines that we've got now and that could completely upset the plans again. And everyone that I'm talking to says his biggest concern is that we'll have to go into another lockdown. So I think some very hard lessons have been learned. Um, and I think that th- things are, things have changed. He has changed his approach as a result. It's really interesting that 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 shift. That maybe you know the the old Boris Johnson would have gone into that meeting with Tory MPs just seeking to please them. Which has happened so many times before. He goes in. He says something slightly off the cuff, which gives them the opportunity to think, oh, he's promised us something there. And then there's a whole sort of kerfuffle for 48 hours until number 10 can sort of get back to where they want to be. The fact that 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 isn't happening now, similarly, we've seen it when, you know, the EU, whether it's the, the issue with the uh, the borders in Northern Ireland or the EU and their trouble with the vaccines, not rising to it, not winding people up, not going for the glib remark or the sort of, you know, the half joke with a twinkle in the eye, which just causes no end of problems for, for other people. He does seem to be reining it in a bit. He definitely is, and, and it's a big change in his his perspective. And the other thing that strikes me is, at some point, not politics as normal, but politics will return. At the moment, it's very apolitical. We've spoken to senior people in the shadow cabinet who have told us, look, the problem that we've got is, at the moment, everyone's rooting for, for Boris to be successful. And to an extent, we are too, because we want a, a big vaccines rollout. We want things to go well. What they're trying to do is for the good of the country. So opposition politics is very, very difficult at the moment. Um, and what senior Tory strategists, their, their view is that, look, we're not going to get a vaccine bump off the success of this rollout. It's not going to be a huge surge in the polls, but it might be enough to cancel out and, and for people to forgive us over some of the mistakes earlier in the pandemic. And you look at some of the polling at the moment and 
Keir Starmer isn't making massive inroads. It's still roughly level. He's up sometimes. He's not where you'd want to be at this stage of an electoral cycle. So it feels, if anything, that the pressure is increasingly on Keir Starmer to kind of change the game and somehow find a way out to, to get back to politics. But every time he tries that, the Prime Minister is going to say to him, you're playing politics with people's lives in a pandemic. And that is a very powerful argument and it is a difficult one to respond to. Finally, Steve, we mentioned Allegra Stratton, the new uh, press secretary in number 10. We were well, part of all the kerfuffle with Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane at the end of last year was because Lee Kane had this idea of bringing in someone to front up the uh, Downing Street press conferences on TV. Uh, it ended up being Allegra Stratton, who then appeared to play a role in Lee Kane's departure. We're still waiting for these televised press conferences to begin. Is it possible they, they might never happen? The thinking at the moment from people I'm talking to is that they will happen. It's just not, they are not going to happen now. So at the moment, we've got another press conference, you know, press conferences every other day at the moment. And the Prime Minister took the view that the public wants to be hearing from him, from the experts, the scientists, and from his cabinet ministers. So that's what we're get, getting. And in a way, that, that is a platform that the government's got to speak to millions of people on a daily basis. So there's a question of what additional need would televised lobby briefings serve? And as you and I both know, Matt, having sat through many lobby briefings, <laughs> they're probably not the most stimulating of, of viewing for people. They're normally us asking lots of questions in slightly different ways and downing streets to stonewalling them and not answering them, which is not the best to and fro. Um, but what I'm told is there is a place for these televised briefings. It just isn't now. They're looking at once you start to get the easing. So I guess you're looking at kind of March, April time, um, round then that we may we may see them. So they're they're coming. It's just not yet, and that's their argument for not doing them yet. <laughs> so leave it until there's no news, and then they'll have a news conference. <laughs> Interesting. So at least we'll know that the news has gone back to normal once they start having those uh, press conferences. Uh, Steve Swinford, the political editor of the Times. Thanks very much for uh, explaining what is going on in Down Street. Up next, Steve just mentioned there that last week Boris Johnson met the executive of the 1922 committee, essentially the shop stewards of Tory MPs. We'll speak to one of them, Charles Walker, vice chairman of the committee. Uh, that's next on Times Radio. Times Radio. Join Asma Mir and me, Stig Abel, every Monday to Thursday morning from 6 for The Breakfast Show on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Trusted news, insight and opinion that speaks for itself. We're going to be discovering the day together. A bold new voice in the morning. Asma Mir and Stig Abel at breakfast. Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. We're taking a look at whether things have really changed in number 10. Just the sense of a new tone and a new approach. We've just discussed with Steve Swinford the change outwardly in terms of decision making and policy making within the government. But what about relations between Downing Street and Tory MPs? When Dominic Cummings was there, he's known not to really be a fan of Conservative MPs. Uh, so I spoke to Charles Walker, vice chairman of the 1922 committee, essentially the, the shop stewards of backbench Tory MPs, and began by asking him if Tory MPs were feeling the love. Well, I, it's just a lot better, to be honest. Everything seems uh, better managed, better communicated. I, I just think it just seems steadier. 
Uh, the Prime Minister, well, not so much the Prime Minister, number 10 isn't crossing the road to start a fight, if that makes sense. And I just think at this really difficult time, that that is what is required, to be honest. Do you think there's a slight sense of having learnt uh, some, from some of the mistakes of last year that the sort of over-optimism bias of, you know, we'll be back to normal by the summer, we'll be back to normal by September, we'll be back, that actually... What we now see is a prime minister who's who's willing to say, uh, "Look, it is going to be a while," or you know, "I'm sticking to March the eighth for schools reopening and not constantly edging on on the on the optimistic, the sort of under promise and over deliver." I think that's definitely that's definitely the case. I think that the messaging the messaging is better. It's difficult just it's, it's difficult to put your finger on it, but just the whole operation feels like it's better thought through, um, and. I don't know who gets the credit for that. I think the new chief of staff has obviously got to take some credit. He looks like a very sober, considered, thoughtful person. Uh, Allegra running, Allegra Stratton running communications is someone who's always been much liked by Conservative MPs and respected, I think, by all members of Parliament, to be honest, when she was a journalist. So the, ho- the whole thing just feels like a happier ship. Does that make sense? Just a happier, um, a, a happier ship. I think the prime minister looks more comfortable, more confident. I hope that he's got people around him who can take him out of a cabinet meeting and just sit him down and say, right, Prime Minister, let's provide you with the space and the time to reflect on what you've heard and and make a decision. So so perhaps in the past, and I have no way of knowing this, he was he might have felt bounced or pushed or even potentially bullied into making a, a decision. He probably wouldn't have called it bullying. I described as that. Now, I suspect in number 10 that he is provided with the space and time by, by people who have his interests and the nation's interests at heart to make a better informed, more reflective decisions. It sounds like you think that it's now Boris Johnson running the country and not Dominic Cummings running the country. I think he's looking much more comfortable, the Prime Minister, in what he's doing. In this incredibly difficult time that would challenge anyone, um, you'd have to be superhuman not to approach every day at the moment with a degree of trepidation and concern with what's going on. But he does look more confident. He does look like he's better in charge of his his brief. He's he's more confident in the chamber. Um, And and actually, he's he's although he all prime ministers are combative, he's actually less aggressive. I don't think I don't know if you've noticed that in the chamber. I think he's just feeling more on top of things um, or at at least uh, more comfortable with 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 the decisions he's making. And and what's the mood amongst uh, Tory MPs like? I'd picked up from a a couple of your colleagues that they'd even heard from the Prime Minister. He'd rung them over Christmas to apologise about what went on under Dominic Cummings and to say, you know, we want you back in the fold and and part of the team and that sort of thing. Is that aware? Are you aware of that? I mean, I'm not aware of that specific, but it wouldn't surprise me that he did that. But it was nice a couple of weeks ago. He was in in the tea room with colleagues and gave colleagues um, time and attention. I mean, he is he is an irresistible force. It's very difficult to be cross at the Prime Minister for a long period of time, particularly when you're in his company. And uh, I mean, I cross a lot of the time. I'm a very cross and angry person. Um, but it, it's it's very difficult to, 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 to have animosity towards him when you're actually in his presence. And is that touring of the tea room, is that a, a sort of new development? Prime Ministers always always said when they were candidates, I shall be in the tea room talking to you all. I remember Boris when he spoke to us said, actually, um, I won't be in the tea room a lot of the time, but it doesn't mean I'm not very fond of yours. So at least he was honest about that. But it is always nice to see. 
One striking thing we've seen in recent weeks is taking a slightly different tone with the EU, whether it was over the situation in Northern Ireland or over uh, vaccines, them talking down our vaccines, us doing better with the rollout of the vaccine. But we don't seem to have risen to it in quite the same way as before. Have you been surprised by that? We we have wonderful friends on the in the EU, within the EU, and it's 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 now time to be gracious and generous and warm. But, you know, up to a point, they have a duty to be gracious and generous and warm to us. But let's just you know, stop knocking lumps out of each other and try and help each other where we can when the time is right. This is a new sort of grown up Boris Johnson. I think it's just an evolving Boris Johnson, isn't it? He had a job to do. He had to get us out of of the EU. He had to deliver on the referendum. Then he had to negotiate a difficult deal. And I just do think, though, he benefits from having some pretty, and I mean sober, not in the sense that people were going out and drinking, but sober, reflective people around him. Does that make sense? Because I think the Prime Minister is a great enthusiast and very ebullient. Yeah. And it's nice to have people who perhaps counter that and out of that mix of skills and talents emerges um, a, a moderate but still optimistic and smiling voice. Now, one of the areas where the government uh, has faced criticism in the past but seems to at least be making some uh, efforts to address has been the treatment of women, women in the government. Um, the last reshuffle was branded sexist. There's been criticism that hardly any female ministers have been seen at Downing Street press conferences uh, or on uh, TV media rounds, although that does seem to have changed in the last few weeks. There's even talk of uh, more female ministers being promoted as and when we get a reshuffle. So let's speak to... Anne Jenkin, Baroness Jenkin, co-founder of Women to Win in the Conservative Party with uh, Theresa May. And thanks for joining us. Do you think it's often been said in the past whether or not uh, this Prime Minister or that Prime Minister has a woman problem? Uh, has Boris Johnson got a woman problem? I think it's more that the Conservative Party has a woman problem. They're all very good at, and previous chairs of the party and so on, all very good at talking the talk. But they don't always walk the walk as well. I mean, it's not Boris's fault that the parliamentary party is only 25% women. So let me turn that on its head and remind you that that's 75% men. I mean, I've heard him say that he looks across the chamber and he sees all the women on the other side. He looks behind me and says, where are all our women? Well, they're not there because we don't have enough. Um, and, and those that we do have are pretty inexperienced because we have an issue about retention and um, I'm very focused on that to make sure that we don't lose the substantial number of new women MPs who were elected only 14 months ago. 70% of the women MPs we've got were elected only five years ago. So there's an issue with the pipeline and there's an issue with retention, but I don't think it's particularly his problem. But I do think that if you live in a man's world, and after all, he is surrounded by men in the cabinet elsewhere, I don't think that men notice it in the way that women do. I mean, I live in a man's world and I count every meeting I'm in, 45 men, five women. You know, that's the norm for me. And they don't count because the norm for them is 45 men and five women and they don't notice it. Um, so I think there's more awareness uh, in recent weeks and that was that can do nothing but help. Yeah, and after, after various stories about how women hadn't been used in the Downing Street press conferences or on the media round, we did suddenly then get a bit of a flurry. We just feel like we're definitely seeing more of Pretty Patel and Liz Truss and Therese Coffey out and about making the case for the government on their briefs uh, uh, as well, of course. But would you like mm. to see more of that? Well, of course I would. But, I mean, I go back to the point that you've got to have the right women in the right jobs. And I think when... Um... 
one of them was being asked that, they said, well, we, you know, we aren't, we're not Chancellor of the Exchequer, we're not Health Secretary and, and so on. But I do think that we would, I think that women in particular would like to see more women at um, more junior levels, if you like. I mean, we, our public health minister is a woman. We don't see her very much. We don't see the Attorney General. We don't see women, actually. You know, there's a lot of women MPs who've been living the same experiences as many other women, homeschooling. There's several of them that have had cancer in lockdown. Some of them are, I mean, we're just about to have our first cabinet minister ever having a, I think, having a baby in office. Um, and I think women would like to hear more of, you know, women's experiences uh, as how it's affected them in lockdown and as ministers as well, because, you know, they're human beings like everybody else struggling with homeschooling and perhaps <laughs> parents at home and all, all the rest of it. Um, so, I mean, yes, I would like to see far more of them, but the bottom line is that we need more in the, in the pipeline and more women coming forward and more women MPs because 25% is not enough. And your your point is that uh, when you talk about the pipeline, you can't suddenly have, and there's talk that Boris Johnson will have some sort of reshuffle when, I was going to say when, when all this is passed, but whoever, whoever that, whatever that might be. But we can't suddenly have... Uh, dozens more women in the cabinet if there if there aren't dozens of women in the the one the next one down in the government and the one below because because you need the experience you can't just catapult people who weren't even MPs five minutes ago into the cabinet that's exactly right and that has happened in the past that, that women have sometimes been uh, promoted very quickly and it's not fair on them and it's and of course it, what it also does in is it alienates men and um, we, we, you know, we want to be there on a level playing field. Everybody does. It's just a, it's just a question of quantity and, um, and experience. So, I mean, my focus is on making sure we don't have a huge number of retirements next time. And a lot, of, as I think you'll be aware, and you'll have seen because it was in the Times last week, that uh, the Prime Minister came to a, a meeting of the women, Conservative women MPs, which talked about all kinds of things, domestic abuse bill, which is currently going through Parliament, um, you know, education and getting back into schools. But they did, he did also ask them about the sort of abuse that they, they have been getting, which is disproportionate. I mean, MPs across the board get it, but I think Conservative women MPs get it disproportionately. And so there's no question that he is interested and keen to support. It's quite difficult to know exactly what should be done on it. But, but I mean, one thing I would urge when it comes to the reshuffle is that they commit to having two ministers two female ministers in every government department. At the moment, I think there are six which have no female ministers at all. And you don't get a balanced view around the table. This isn't about women being superior or men being inferior or anything like that. It's about women's life experiences being different. And you have to have that difference reflected around the table. So I would suggest that no cabinet committee has uh, um, is allowed to happen without having a woman on it. I would say every government department needs at least two. And I'm not saying that every woman has the same experience as each other, but it does need it does need a balance and you make better decisions. But he has the opportunity to make this happen and he must uh, grasp that. At, at, you know, and start off at a more junior level, of course, because people want experience before they go into the cabinet. But it needs a balance around the table, and I hope very much that he will do that when the time comes. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. 
Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Thank you.